0: So well tonight and uh, we'll one day sing together in glory and uh, what a blessing to be able to sing that great hymn together tonight. Thank you Derek and Pam uh, doing double duty today and uh, leading singing and and accompanying and appreciate uh, so much their music ministry. Psalm 119, Psalm 119 and we'll go back to this stanza again entitled or subtitled with the letters P.E. From the Hebrew letter, and the t- stanza. So each verse of this stanza in the original language in Hebrew would begin with that letter pe or P or PE. PE. Not sure exactly how uh, that is pronounced. We have entitled or borrowed the title for this chapter, Psalm 119, being the Mount Everest of the Bible. And we read together verses 129. Through one thirty six, we have seen in this study through this great chapter, we have seen some reoccurring themes, some repetitive themes, and no doubt we'll find that again tonight. But let's begin in verse one twenty nine, in verses one twenty nine through one thirty one, where we see God's wonderful word gives understanding. God's wonderful word. Gives understanding. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. We see that word wonderful. We sang uh, this morning, or actually I think it was Pam who played this uh, hymn, 181, Wonderful Words of Life. Which speaks to this uh, very truth that we find here in Psalm 119, in verse 129. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Christ, the blessed one, gives to all wonderful words of life. Sinner. List to the loving call, wonderful words of life. All so freely given, wooing us to heaven. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. The third stanza reads, sweetly echo the gospel call, wonderful words of life. Offer pardon and peace to all, wonderful words of life. Jesus, only Savior, sanctify forever. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. The scriptures, God's word, is truly wonderful. They are wonderful words of life. They are wonderful in their nature. They are wonderful in their nature. Holy, right, righteous, pure, supernatural. Is not Jesus Christ, the living word, the wonderful counselor? They are wonderful in effect, creating, transforming, purifying, upholding, sustaining, instructing, comforting, Strengthening, rebuking, convicting, wonderful in effect. They are wonderful in degree. Highest, greatest, wisest, grandest. Truly wonderful words of life. We see also there in verse 130, the entrance of thy words giveth light. And we see that in the Hebrew poetry, the the rhyming of ideas again. The rhyming of words not necessarily in sound, as we would think of in the English language. Roses are red, violets are blue, and all that. We, we often put rhyme in, in endings and sound. There, here we see the rhyming in the Hebrew poetry, the rhyming of ideas, the rhyming of words, the rhyming of meaning. And it's a reiteration of a similar thought The entrance of thy words giveth light. And it's then compared to or paralleled with understanding unto the simple. So the light of God's word gives understanding to the simple. So we know from Psalm 19 and verse 7 that the simple are made wise by the word of God. We could go to Proverbs 1. Proverbs 1, in verse number 4. Proverbs 1, in verse number 4. To give subtly to the simple, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. Again, the idea of the simple being made wise. There are people who are scorners, fools. Proverbs describes different types of fools. He talks about... The simple ones, and he talks about the wise. And the simple are often the naive, somewhat ignorant, not really thinking seriously about life and life's questions, just kind of going along with the flow, just kind of, I don't know, maybe a little bit of just whatever happens, happens. Easily influenced one way or another. And... The simple are in danger. The simple are in danger because they're not wise. Yes, they're not fools, but sadly we have, in Christianity and in churches, we have many simple people. Well, I'm not not scorning. I'm not mocking God. I haven't said in my heart there is no God. I'm not a fool, but they don't don't really want to be wise. And what changes the simple? Man, the simple one, from being simple to wise, it's the word of God. As the word of God brings understanding, discernment, the simple become wise. This understanding, again, has to do with discernment, to separate mentally, cunning in the sense even of a very skilled laborer who is a master at their trade, who is able to make the right cuts to measure just the right measurement, able to, with skill, put that wood or that metal or whatever that particular labor requires. There's a skill to that. There is the ability to discern and to make it happen with great skill, with great discernment, with great wisdom. And that's what God's Word gives to us. We are given skill for life. We're we're given discernment so that we are not like children who are immature. That we're not like the waves. We're not carried about with every wind of doctrine. But that we are mature. That we can recognize the evil and call it what it is. That there's a discernment of life. Not that we're perfect, but that there is a Wisdom of life that is according to the principles of God's word, so that we are making decisions that honor and please the Lord. We come back to Psalm 119 and verse 129, therefore doth my soul keep them. So recognizing and respecting and revering God's words as wonderful, keeping them, then translates into this. Giving of light to produce understanding, discernment, and changes the simple from a simple person to wise, which then brings us to verse 131, I opened my mouth and panted for I longed for thy commandments. We see here this word longing, which would be very obvious to us, a strong desire for. And we see, I opened my mouth and I panted. That's a little bit of an odd phrase for us. When we think of panting, we think of dogs. We have a dog at home, and the dog pants. That's their, from what I I understand, it's their air conditioning mechanism because they don't have the same type of skin and pores and all that, and I don't know all the science of it, but our little dog, it doesn't take but 15, 20 minutes of a walk, especially in the heat, and he is, (laughs) and the tongue's hanging out. And we, we think of that when we think of panting. But I remember being on a mission trip to Arizona, and one of our, we were at the Regeneration Reservation in Arizona, we were uh, ministering to, uh, I, think, I think it was the, the Apache Indians, and uh, I can't remember exactly all that w- was uh, involved there, but we had to, every morning, for about four or five days, we had to go out, and we had to, to help there on the, I guess for lack of a better word, it would be the mission compound. I don't want it to sound like it's some fortress, you know, with a big fort and, and uh enemy, you know, enemies surrounding it, and there's guns and all that. Not, not mission compound and that, but the area that there was the church, there was the dormitory, there was a school, uh, kind of the place where they had been allowed to build buildings, and they had some property there, and there were these little shrub trees. I think they were called acacia. It reminded me a little bit of what I saw in Africa. It's a similar type of environment. And they had thorns that were extremely long. And we had to go out, and part of our job was to clear these trees. These They were more like a brush. They didn't get very high, at least in that area, or at that time. But I'm assuming they were getting ready to do some sort of future building project or expansion, and we had to go out and we had to clear these And we would work in the morning, of course, in Arizona in the summer, even the mornings it would be 100 degrees, 105, and they would then have us come back and then we would have lunch and then we would do ministry all afternoon and evening uh, in and and around the reservation. But I, I tell you what, I have never been so thirsty in my life than after I had finished working for a couple, three hours, and they would give us breaks and they'd, have us in the shade, but there was a vending machine at the boys' dormitory. And we took every loose change that we could possibly find, and they had water and stuff for us, but there was nothing like a cold, I know for some people this sounds silly, but there was nothing like a cold 7-Up after working two to three hours out in the 100 and 105 degree heat. And we would come back, and you know, in that dry heat, you don't sweat like you normally do here in Indiana or in some places where there's high humidity. And we didn't realize how thirsty we had become, even with the breaks. And it was like we were panting. We couldn't wait to get back to the dorm, and we were fighting, you know, pushing each other out of the way, practically, to get in line for that vending machine to put those quarters in. And back then, pop was, I forget, it had to have been like 50 cents, um, maybe maybe less than that. You could actually buy a can of pop for 50 cents, um, and that was early 90s, but, you know, we couldn't wait to get that loose change, and that was before they even had the dollar bill uh, takers, the dispenser there. You couldn't even put in a dollar bill. You had to have the exact change, and we would pant for that 7-Up, for that vending machine or whatever pop was in there, and it never tasted better than when we had come, after, come back from working two or three hours in that heat. And again, I can't help but think, do we have that kind of desire for the word of God? Or is it easy to go a day, two days, three days, a week, and it's almost like it's no big deal. Oh, well, maybe I can pull up my Bible app and I can see the verse of the day and that'll be enough. And we, we, we try to live on the daily crumb. When we need the substance, the meat and the milk of God's word daily, daily. And we should have such a desire for God and for his word that it should be a strong desire. We get up in the morning or if your time is better in the evening, maybe you're more awake and you have a better time in the evening. I know for me, it's morning. That's when I have the the most peace and quiet, the the, the fewest distractions. And I get my Baptist brew, my cup of coffee, and uh, I enjoy my time in the word of God. But we need that desire. It should be. Such a desire for us that we long for, we pant for the Word of God. I know there's also the psalm that speaks of as the deer panteth for the water brooks, so my soul longeth after thee. So we should have that kind of longing, that kind of desire for the Word of God. And it produces discernment. Discernment then produces obedience, which helps increase our desire to know God and His Word and to increase in personal holiness. And it's such a joy to see God work in our lives and for us to see God work in our children's lives or our grandchildren's lives or in others' lives as they come under the, the Word of God and submit to the Word of God and allow the Word of God to mold and to shape them. And as we grow in our knowledge of God, we see God changing us and making us more Christ-like. We see that discernment and that increases that desire to know God, His Word, and to increase in our personal holiness and our sanctification. So we also see in this passage then, in verses 132 and 133, we see that our steps must be ordered by God's word. Our steps must be ordered by God's word. Look thou upon me and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. He's just simply saying, he's just simply saying, we have seen you work in the past, Lord. We have seen you Show your mercy. We have seen you look upon us with favor. We want that. We desire that. In verse 133, Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. We see that God desires a close relationship with his children. The psalmist cries out, Look thou upon me, and be merciful unto me. God wants us to have a close, intimate, vibrant relationship with him. God doesn't want us distant. God doesn't want us far away. God doesn't want us inconsistent. God wants us. He doesn't move. It's us that distances ourselves from God. It's not God distancing himself from us. It's us because of sin, because of apathy, or whatever the case may be. It's us getting away from the Lord. But God wants that close relationship with him. The psalmist cries out for that Look thou upon me. He wants God's mercy that he would see God work as he has seen in the past. God wants and desires a close relationship with his children. Again, that word or that phrase, look thou upon me. It speaks of prayer in verse 131. I opened my mouth and panted that longing for the Lord that, of course, also includes prayer. I should have mentioned that already. But verse 132, look thou upon me, speaks of God's nearness. And that nearness comes according to the word of God. That nearness to God doesn't come through some mystical experience, some emotional experience, though God has given us emotions, but the emotional experience sometimes is equated with the Holy Spirit. And we see sometimes emotion taking over, and the mind being emptied, and it's not God thoughts that are controlling us, it's some other thoughts, or this mystical, and we see it in some of these so-called worship services, where it's almost an out-of-body experience, there's such an emotional takeover, and sometimes, in some of those services, you see some pretty strange things going on, and people are flopping on the ground and going into gyrations. And that is not of the Lord. There's some other kind of effect. And I, I'll have to say that sometimes it just looks downright demonic. He's not talking about that kind of experience. He's talking about an experience according to the word of God. It's with the mind engaged, with the heart submitted. And in understanding who God is and his attributes and seeing the holiness and the greatness of God... We are struck with His awesomeness, and we are humbled, and we are brought low, and we cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the work of the Holy Spirit then is guiding us into all truth, as we read in John 16 and verse 13. The Holy Spirit is pointing us to the truth, and the Word of God is pointing to the Word of God, and pointing us to Christ and exalting God, not self as we sometimes see in these so-called church services and worship services. It's really about self, isn't it? It's about self-exaltation. It's about getting attention. It's more about a performance and creating some sort of experience than it is about worshiping the Lord and exalting the Lord. And then he speaks of, in verse 133, of ordering our steps in thy word. Literally, it is our life being directed or ordered by the Word of God. And let not any iniquity have dominion over me. The key to victory, spiritual victory, is ordering our life according to the Word of God, living by His commands, His principles, and His promises. So we need God's Word to help us avoid sin's dominion. Sin has the power to blind us has the power to then bind us, and then sin has the power to grind us, as one evangelist said in regards to Samson, who was blinded, self-deceived by sin, sensual sin especially, though other sins, selfishness, and we could go through the example of Samson, and we can see he was blinded by his sensuality, his selfishness, though he had great strength, and though God used him, he was blinded by his sin, and that resulted in him being bound, literally, yes, spiritually, but also physically. And then what did he end up doing? Grinding out there in the with the grain or the crops or however that was all. Instead of the animal taking and turning that turnstile, it was him tied to that, blinded, physically now blinded. And he found out that sin took him further than he ever wanted to go and cost him more than he ever wanted to pay and kept him a lot longer than he ever wanted to stay. We need God's word to help us avoid sin's dominion. We need God's word to order our steps. Now, let me take a a few moments here and cast a little bit of a warning. I'm putting something on the screen that is relatively new to me. And it has become, in even Christian circles, a way to try to determine God's will for how to live out life, how to have good relationships. It's called an Enneagram. I don't know if any, anybody has ever heard of it. Its roots come out of the New Age and spiritualism, spiritism. And you can supposedly find a way to better relationships, to better peace with oneself, to overcome fear and anger, and to have the right self-image. Okay, I don't even understand completely how it works, but if you look over there to the right, well, it would be to your right. Perfectionist. Reformer. I have a bit of perfectionism in me. And uh, it drives Kelly crazy sometimes, I think. But that can be then, it can have wings and be coupled with the generalist, which would be a weak point, or it could be coupled with the romantic, the artist. I'm definitely not an artist. I don't know about romance and all that. Anyway, it it's a way then that People have begun to try to figure out how to order their life in relationships. So people are beginning to use this. It's fairly popular. And people are looking at this instead of God's word ordering their life. This becomes a way that people try to order their life. It has even, with some Christian people who are well-meaning, I would say even truly born-again people who have counseling, psychology degrees, or whatever, and they are truly wanting to help people, they have been borrowing this and trying to use this even among so-called Christians. But when you get into the little bit of research on the Enneagram, you find out that, and you can see it there, anger, fear, even self-image, we think of self-esteem, loving oneself, that even sin is just a number, okay? Supposedly it helps people, as some Christians try to use it, it supposedly helps people diagnose their sin. Now, isn't it the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, that's supposed to convict us of our sin? To guide us into all truth. So, for some people, well-meaning people, even Christian people, this has become a replacement for the Holy Spirit. Instead of allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly and being guided by the Word of God, this tool then becomes their guide and becomes the Holy Spirit. The man who really popularized this is a man by the name of Richard Rohr. He is a universalist his particular form of universalism is called perennialism he says that all religions come from the same source he denies hell and say all religion says all religions lead to god so in the enneagram there's supposedly a true self and a false self and so the only true sin in the modern pop psychology form of the enneagram and again, there are good, well-meaning Christians who then borrow this and are actually causing people to be led astray. But in the pop psychology version of the Enneagram, there's only the true self and the false self. And the false self is what is affected by the outside influences, the traumas, the oppressions. There isn't, there isn't any true sin the only sin is when you are not true to yourself. Do you not see the danger in that? So then, Christians have tried to take the true self and the false self, and have tried to apply and relabel it from Ephesians 4 that the true—excuse me—the false self is the old self, and the true self is the new self, the old man and the new man of Ephesians 4 trying to relabel and using pop psychology and even New Age and Spiritism to try to teach sanctification. There is no violation, and again, in the pop psychology sense of the Enneagram, there's no real violation of God's righteous law. There's only violations of the true self. So once again, we see... Self is the guiding light, not the word of God. It's me. I set the boundaries. I set the definitions. The world revolves around me. I determine my destiny. Me, 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 and me. I then have my own truth. And then I can use the Enneagram to help me in my relationships, but I'm the one who is the guiding light. We can see the danger. There's a book called "The Road Back to You." It talks about essence of oneself, shimmering. I'm kind of afraid to think about what that might mean. and I don't think that has anything to do anything to do with makeup or suntan lotion. I think it has something to do with some sort of spiritism. But even good meaning, well-meaning. Christian people who try to use the enneagram they are borrowing from new age sources to try to make the enneagram work and what's sad is it's so deceptive that people will actually see oh, oh I'm a 6 and so I have been overcoming fear by being more in touch with my mediator self and uh, and now because I'm in touch with my mediator self I'm more of a peacemaker and less of a fearmonger, or less, I have less fear in my life. There was a, a, a lady who said that she went to a women's Bible study, and they were all talking about the Enneagram. It wasn't about the Bible at all. I'm so glad that on Tuesday night, we're not going to have any Enneagrams. We're going to be having a Bible study, the ladies are. And she said that they spent the first part of the meeting all trying to figure out what number they were on the Enneagram. And once they figured out that somebody was a six, this lady who was giving this testimony, she said, they identified me as a six, and so everybody laughed at me because I was the one who was living in fear. And so everybody then became known by their number, and then they began to identify according to their number. It's so so dangerous. She said it wasn't even about the word of God, it was about following the Enneagram to figure out how to have better relationships and how to have a guiding direction in your life. How sad. You know, the enemy, the enemy will be happy, the enemy will be happy to see us improve in some area of our life while poisoning us in another area that's equally as dangerous. But because we see improvement here, we think that now we are exempt from any kind of other poison or attack when actually Satan is attacking on an end around from behind in a sneak attack, but because we're so focused on the good things that we maybe are improving on, without the help of the Lord, with the help of the enneagram and other type of mental self-help psychological helps, we get a certain amount of help, forgetting this other area that Satan is attacking is. Poisoning our thoughts and our, our life with. Without getting too carried away here, this Enneagram has not only a spiritism or a, a New Age roots, but it actually can be used in such a general sense that it's almost like palm reading or reading horrible scopes. I mean horoscopes. You know, where it's just so generic and it's just so general and you're reading through... Not that you should be reading your palms or going to a psychic or anything like that. But you know how it is. You pick up a fortune cookie and you read and it's a very generic fortune and you can read into it, right? And people who use the Enneagram, they can make the Enneagram say all kinds of things because it's so generic that people can actually begin to form their own opinions and form their own will based on their own thoughts, because they generate positive thoughts about their situation and read that into. It's a very deceptive, uh, kind of a psychic way, spiritist, new age kind of way to try to order our life. Dangerous. We need to be on the lookout for this kind of thing. and Be very careful. This is not how we should order our life. We should order our life according to the word of God. As the psalmist says there in verse 133, order my steps in thy word. Sadly, this Enneagram actually leads to iniquity having dominion over us because it's not according to the truth. It's not according to the power of God. So then we move to our last point tonight in verses 134 through 136. It should rightly bother us to see the word of God. Rejected. Verse 134 Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. We see this reoccurring theme. The psalmist wants victory, he, he doesn't want persecution, but it's more than just that. He, he wants to have victory in his life, he wants to see God victorious, he doesn't want to be captured by the sins of the wicked. He wants God to bring justice upon the wicked. He knows that the wicked are seeking dominion over the righteous. We see the deceptive and the oppressive tactics. We see them more and more trying to take away our rights and our freedoms. Even to do what we do right here. Every Sunday and Wednesday night and other times. And there is a desire by Satan to have Total dominion, and he has his principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. We see the spirit of the Antichrist in the world. We see people who give themselves over to that with the sins of the flesh and buying into worldly, carnal lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And the psalmist is crying out, Deliver me, I don't want to be caught in the traps of the wicked. No, he doesn't want to be persecuted though that may come but more than that he's saying deliver me from their wicked schemes let me not get caught up in their traps let me not get into their way of thinking let me not be caught by their wrong philosophies and their wrong ideas about how to get through life like what we just described with the Enneagram and we must seek God's favor rather than the world's we must seek God's favor rather than the world's I I heard this, I'm not sure I'm going to quote it correctly, but I heard this quote this week, you know, really hit home with me. And it was something like this. If the storms, if the storms of the culture cause the pulpit to be misty, then the pews will be foggy and there will not be clarity for the church. It will cause doubt, in confusion and disobedience and that really hit home with me because i in no way shape or form ever want this pulpit to be misty to be foggy or cause fog i'm not just talking about those fog machines that some of these so-called churches use to create a certain atmosphere and only if you can have a certain atmosphere then you can have a certain kind of worship anyway that's a that's another Story. I'm not talking about fog machines, all right, to try to create some sort of ambience or a certain atmosphere. But I don't want, through my lack of faithfulness to the word of God, through my lack of rightly dividing the word of truth, through my unwillingness to preach on sin, to be unwilling to deal with some of the dangers that are out there, if I'm not being a good shepherd from the pulpit, then I am causing a mist On the people, that creates a fog in the congregation that creates doubt, confusion, and ultimately disobedience. And we've seen too many churches, too many denominations go down the slide into rebellion, disobedience, sin, apostasy, liberalism, All of the other terms that we could use, progressive Christianity. And one of the tools of progressive Christianity that they have used to get into churches has been the Enneagram, from what I heard. And woe is me if I ever, because of my lack of shepherding the flock of God, and my lack of faithfulness to the word of God, woe is me if I ever were to lead the church in a misty way that creates fog for God's people. And there are too many denominations and too many churches, too many pastors that have done that, sadly. And then we come to verse 136. And aren't there tears for seeing the rejection of God's law? There's a righteous anger, a right kind of anger. Jesus overturned the the money changers, the tables of the money changers, seeing the irreverence, the blasphemy of what was going on there in God's house turning it into a den of thieves and robbers. Okay, there's a right kind of anger. We talked about anger a little bit this morning in this morning's message. There is a right form of anger. And that's kind of what the psalmist is referring to in verse 136. There are times where our heart is broken at seeing the rejection of God's law. There's a soberness, a sobering reality. Dr. Bob III used to start chapel regularly. And he would have us quote with him, the sobering, the most sobering reality in the world today is that people are dying and going to hell today. That should break our hearts. But there is a righteous anger, a brokenness, even tears at seeing what's going on in the Middle East right now, at seeing the sexual insanity that is in our culture as boys and girls, are being mutilated, sterilized. That there's millions of unborn babies that are being murdered, massacred for the God of money and selfish pleasure. Now I heard that this week that Planned Parenthood, you can make an appointment as a kid without your parents' knowledge, you can make an appointment to get Hormone therapy pills out of Planned Parenthood. We've known all along what Planned Parenthood's really all about. It's about genocide, murder of human life. And now they're passing out human hormone, cross-sex pills, whatever all that therapy treatment is called, that is absolutely horrible to a child's body and can have all kinds of harmful effects. I hear there's blindness now associated with these hormone therapies they're putting children through. I've heard not just the sterilizing of boys and girls, but even some other kinds of brain damage that's now research is discovering. We're angry, aren't we, sometimes? Just downright angry, but we have to direct that anger in the right way. We have to... Turn that over to the Lord and remember that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. God will bring justice. There is a day of punishment for the wicked. We pray for their souls, that they will turn to Christ in saving faith. We're told in, I believe it's in 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, we're told to pray for those in leadership. That we might lead a righteous life in in godliness and fear, right? And we pray for that, and we desire that, and we do everything we can for that. But like Jeremiah, we sometimes weep in Lamentations. As Jeremiah wrote there, the whole book of Lamentations on seeing the destruction of Jerusalem and seeing the effects of sin. And yet Jeremiah would write in Lamentations 3 that God's mercies are new every morning. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. And But by the grace of God, so go I. So three quick points tonight, that we should be rightly bothered to see the Word of God rejected, that God's Word is truly wonderful, and it gives understanding, and that our steps must be ordered by the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your Word. Thank you for these truths in this stanza that, Lord, speak to our hearts, that encourage us. Lord, we want justice to be served. We know that, Lord, you are a God of justice, a God of holiness and wickedness will not ultimately prevail we know that lord you are in control that you still sit on your throne and lord as we pray for israel we pray also lord that you would be at home in our hearts that the word of god would be rich in our hearts and our lives that like the psalmist we would long for and pan for with a strong desire for the word of god to be real and effective and life-changing and transforming our minds and our lives each and every day, to the image of your Son, that we might be faithful servants, faithful stewards. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Help us, Lord, to live them out, because you'll do your work in our hearts and lives. And Lord, help us to go forth from here and to love you more and to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.